want to talk about living from living a virtuous life. And um, this has been in my heart for a while. It's kind of um, put together some notes at the last minute, but um, I want to. I just. I really feel like. Um, how many know character matters? And um, I think that there's a lot of. Um, I know there, there's a lot of. Uh, Theology and philosophy that circulates through the church at different seasons and time where um, it becomes, we, we so emphasize grace that we take away responsibility, our personal responsibility. I think whenever you emphasize grace to the place that you take away personal responsibility, you have a different gospel. Now that went over good and this is Good Friday, so it's okay, you can shout on Sunday. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, you know, I, we're, we go through these seasons where we think, well, it's all about God. And I, I do believe it, that, that there isn't anything that we can do. Jesus even said, I, I can do nothing except my, I see my Father doing it. And um, in, in John 15, he said, without me, you can do nothing. And so we know that there is nothing we can do without God. But it is true that God does require us to do something. <laughs> Once he gives us the power to do something. That was so deep. We were created for good works in Christ Jesus. I was just reading in Thessalonians where Paul writes to the Thessalonians and he says, If a man doesn't work, neither let him eat. Well, that doesn't sound very graceful. And what I'm getting at is that we have responsibility in the body of Christ. And whenever you take grace and you extend it to the place where we no longer have any, we no longer have anything to do with where we're going or the reward we get. That's not the gospel of the kingdom. How many know that Jesus is coming back and his reward is with him? He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And how many of you have ever heard of the, the parable of the Midas or the talents? That's in the New Testament, would you agree? And it's all about people who were faithful servants who did something with what God gave them. Now, how many of you understand if God, how many understand that the story of the talents is the story of God or the master, if you will, in the, in the parable, giving them some talents? But how many of you know that the rest of the story is about them doing something with it and then getting rewarded for it? It's no, there's no question that God gave you the grace to do what you do. The question, the question is, what do you do with the grace God gave you? And, and so I think it's important for us to, to realize that there are there are virtues and values that we need to um, that we need to embrace in our lives, and I understand that that you know we could preach uh, we could preach this in a way that it almost becomes self righteousness. I I want us to realize that God has given us the power to be right become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That Jesus did that, just like He gave the man talents. He gave the man one, three, five talents. He gave the minus to the men. He gave us grace. But what is it that we do with that grace? Paul said in chapter 3 of Ephesians that he is a steward of the manifold grace of God. How many of you know that you are a steward of your money? I don't hear too many people talking about that they're a steward of the grace that God gave them. The way that you invest money, the way that you take care of money, for example... Is, is, has to do with your, your maturity. In fact, um, Jesus said, who will give you, if you don't take care of unrighteous mammon, 
Who will give you true riches? And in that passage, he's specifically talking about money. Well, all I'm getting at is this, is that you have a responsibility to do something with what you've been given. Now, God wants everyone to be saved, but how many know not everybody will be saved? Let me, are you guys Calvinist or what? How many of you know not everybody will be saved? Why? Because it takes an act of your will to agree with the act of his will. You have a choice to make. God never takes away your choices. God doesn't save robots. He saves people. And so tonight I want to talk a little bit about virtues. And, uh, and I think that virtues in have uh, the idea that, that we should be virtuous, that we have something to do with, how, uh, with our character and, and how we live out life is, some, is becoming a foreign subject for some, in some circles. And it's alarming to me. Um, so in 1 Samuel 18, it's a story of David and the Israeli armies who have just come back from beating Goliath and beating the, their, their arch enemy, the Philistines. And you probably know the story well. 1 Samuel 17 is probably one of the most popular chapters in the whole Bible. As a matter of fact, the world may not know the address of that, of that, um, of that story, but almost everybody in America and most of the globe knows the story of David and Goliath. And so David, you know, he, he beats Goliath, at, uh, and he, and, and the, the Israelites go after the Philistines. They have a great victory that day, and they're, and now they're on their way home. And it says this in verse 1 of chapter 18. It came about that when he had finished speaking to Saul, this is David speaking to Saul. In fact, let's just go back a couple of uh, verses so that you get the context. Verse 55 of the previous chapter. Now when Saul saw that David going out, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, by, by my life, O king, I don't know. And the king said, you are to inquire whose son this youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul and the, with the Philistine's head in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the uh, Bethlehemite. Now it came about, next verse, now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword, his bow, and his belt. I, I just want to stop for a minute and uh, kind of give you an opportunity to understand what's happening. Dave, Saul um, is obviously, he's the king. And he, David kills Goliath. He's a, he's a young, young man, maybe 15, 16, 17 years old. And when he finds out, and, and Saul has a son, his only son, and his son's named Jonathan. And so Jonathan is the rightful heir to the throne. And Jonathan, when he sees David, he says that he loved him as if he loved himself, the way he loved himself. How many know you're supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself? 
How many know this is not talking about homosexuality? This is talking about true, true godly love. He loved him as he loved himself. That shouldn't act, that shouldn't be weird. He loved him as he loved himself. And it says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. How many know there is such thing as positive soul ties? There's definitely negative soul ties, but here's a positive soul tie. And he sees, when he sees David, he's the rightful heir to the throne. I love this. He takes off his robe and he puts it on David and he gives him his weapons and his armor and his belt. I don't know if you understand what just happened there, but he meets David and immediately he realizes that there's something special about this kid and he gives him his royal robe and all of his, and all of his princely weapons. In other words, he just gave David his rightful place. No, Jonathan's rightful place. He just gave away the succession to, um, to David. How many of you understand that Jesus did that for you? He's the rightful heir of the throne. And the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become sons of God. And we sit with Him in heavenly places. And He gave us His robe. He gave us His weapons. And He gave us His belt of truth. The belt of truth. Why the belt of truth? Because everything we reproduce comes from truth. And so... So here, this is a, it's a powerful story, and if you have time to read First Samuel, um, it's it's a very powerful book. The story of the the love between Jonathan and and David is a very powerful story of friendship. <clears throat> it goes on. So um, verse five. So David went out wherever Saul went, and he prospered. And Saul set him over all the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servant. And it happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistines, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul. Who were they coming to meet? King Saul. With tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played, and they said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David has slain his ten thousands. When Saul... Then Saul became very angry, for the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David 10,000, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but my kingdom? So Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. And it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mildly upon Saul. And he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing his harp with his hand and as usual, as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from, the presence, from his presence twice. And Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him, and appointed him as commander of a thousand. And he went out in and out before the people. And David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. And I, I want to I want to just talk a little bit about loyalty and about the enemies of loyalty. It says that Saul was jealous of David. Um, turn to uh, Galatians chapter five. And, 
Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that they may not do the things, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. For the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Everybody say sorcery. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, uh, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which I forewarned you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I, I want you to notice something. It says that an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. How did that happen? Saul opened up his life through jealousy and through suspicion. It says that he was jealous, and then it says he was suspicious, and then it says he was afraid. He was jealous, he was suspicious, and he was afraid. Did you notice that the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5 that they begin with jealousy and strife and contention, but they end up with sorcery, sorcery and witchcraft? Do you understand that you open the door to your life to witchcraft through jealousy, envy, strife, contention, and sin? Are you guys okay? What I'm getting at is this, is that jealousy will open the door to all kinds of evil things in your life. Suspicion. You know what suspicion is? Suspicion is the evil stepsister of discernment. Suspicion is discernment anointed by the wrong spirit. And we, and that spirit, that anointing comes on us and anoints the gift when we normally, some of us have great gifts of discernment, but when we are jealous of somebody, when we're afraid of somebody, when we're competing with somebody, that gift of discernment that we have begins to be anointed by the wrong spirit. And pretty soon, instead of being discerning, we're suspicious. And we're making up things in our mind. Oh, David wants the kingdom. David, David's trying to win my kingdom. David's trying to take my throne. And he begins to rationalize in his mind and have these, and have these conversations with himself. That David is somehow after his throne. You know, um, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I bet you have. Have you ever been angry with somebody and you have an argument with them and they're not even in the room? How many have ever done that? And you're, you're, you know, you're kind of like, you're agitated. You're like, I'm going to say this to them and they're going to say this to me. And when they say that, I'm going to say this back to them. And we begin to have this war and we realize, like, no one's actually in the room, just me. I'm actually having this conversation with myself. I just, I just want to say that it's really important for us to realize, it says, an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. This is interesting because in, in uh, Matthew chapter 18, which is obviously New Covenant, Jesus tells a story. And you know this story. It, it, the story was initiated by Peter saying, how many times do I have to forgive people? Which I think is very funny that Peter brings the subject up. How many times do I have to forgive people? Because <laughs> Peter is the most offensive guy in the Bible. 
besides Jesus. <clears throat> and so Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive people? And Jesus, and he goes, seven times? And he thinks he's being, you know, pretty generous. And Jesus said, no, seven times 70. And I'm sure some of you are like, okay, that would be... And that really is the point. The point is that you, you have no right to hold unforgiveness for a person. And so then he tells him, when, when he hears Peter's comment about, about him being offended and how many times he has to forgive somebody, he's, you know, Jesus tells this story. And he says the kingdom, it begins with this. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who had a slave that owed him, and the amount there is somewhere around a million dollars in today's money. And the king wanted to settle the debts with his slaves, and he said, call the slave to him, and he said, give me the money you owe me. And the slave said to him, please be patient with me, and I'll repay you. And the king forgave the servant the close to a million dollars. You remember this story? And this, that servant went out, and he had a friend that owed him some around $10,000. And he said to the friend, hey, pay me what you owe me. And his friend said to him, please be patient with me and I will get your money. But he didn't. He wasn't patient. He had him thrown in prison. And the next verse, then it says that the king finds out that the slave whom he forgave did not forgive. And he calls the slave to him and he said, listen, you owed me a million bucks. Didn't I forgive you a million dollars? Why shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow slave? And so he turns, the king turns to his soldiers and he says, take this man and throw him into the dungeon and let the tormentors torment him until he pays the last cent. And this is the last verse of first of, I'm sorry, of, uh, of Matthew 18. The last verse of Matthew 18 says this, and so shall my heavenly father do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So shall my heavenly Father do to you. What? Throw you in prison and let the tormentors torment you into forgiveness. How many of you know you can't enter the kingdom of God with unforgiveness in your heart? So the Lord has a ways and means committee. He can chase you across the Red Sea. You get it? The Red Sea, the sea of forgiveness, the blood of Jesus. He can use the Egyptians to chase you across the Red Sea and into forgiveness. This is pretty huge. You know, I think that unforgiveness is probably the single most destructive uh, sin that is actually socially acceptable in the body of Christ. If somebody, if you hear someone has a problem with porn, you're like, oh my God, pornography, adultery. Oh Lord, I can't believe that happened to them. You go, well, you know, so-and-so is not forgiving so-and-so. It's like, well, you know, you just... You know, they, they have a right to be angry. Well, you have a right to be angry, but Ephesians says, be angry, but don't sin. Listen, you don't have to trust people, but you have to forgive them. And if you don't forgive them, you release the tormentors to torment you into freedom. Saul had an evil spirit from the Lord. What was that evil spirit doing? It was trying to torment him into forgiveness. But he just kept embracing more and more fear, more and more suspicion, more and more jealousy. Listen, jealousy is, cannot be 
embraced in our lives. If you thought of jealousy in the same way you thought of pornography or murder, you would think of jealousy the way God does. When you're jealous of somebody, one way to beat it is to invest in them. Then their their victory will be your victory. Always operate in the opposite spirit. If you're jealous of someone, how do, what do I do? I'm jealous of Joe. Okay, well, first of all, remind yourself, why are you jealous? Well, one reason I'm jealous is because I think that he's going to get what's mine. How many of you understand that you're part of a kingdom where there's more than enough? It's pressed down, shaken together, running out all over. Listen, if God gives something to Ben, it doesn't mean he can't give it to me too. There's plenty in the kingdom. We are not paupers fighting over, you know, grains of corn or, or, you know, bowls of rice. We are princes and princesses and we've come into the kingdom of more than enough. So sometimes we're jealous because we think, well, so-and-so got recognized and therefore I didn't. How many of you understand that your day will come? We, we keep in mind that you know, I, I love this. Oftentimes, God will promote somebody who who doesn't deserve it as much as you do, just to see what you'll do, so that to determine how big a promotion you're about to get. Instead of getting promoted, we get demoted because God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we can celebrate someone else's victory, whom we were once jealous of, God goes. Now it's time for your promotion. And it's so amazing that we celebrate somebody, let's just say metaphorically, gets a thousand dollars. We're like, man, I needed that thousand dollars. I'm working harder than he is. Da da da. And he gets a thousand. I pray all the time for it. He gets the money. And God says, if you would have celebrated that, ten thousand was coming at the end of the week for you. But I gave it to somebody else because I can't reward your attitude. You know, one of the things that I've, I've seen happen, and of course, I understand why it happens, but, you know, I've been in grocery stores before where a mother's got one or two or three kids, and she's trying to shop while the kids pull things off the shelf, and God bless mothers. <laughs> Trust me, I wouldn't, I would duct tape them suckers right to the, <sighs> that's why God made duct tape, man, I'd duct tape them. Right to the cart, and I duct taped their mouth so they couldn't scream. <laughs> Which is probably why my wife never let me take the kids shopping when they were little. But, you know, little Johnny's pulling stuff off the shelf. And, and of course, you know, and mom's putting it back, and Johnny's crying. And pretty soon, you know, we've all seen this this scene. Maybe you were... Maybe you, you, your own child was doing it. And pretty soon Johnny starts to scream and there's people in the store and you're embarrassed that Johnny's screaming. Of course, you want Johnny to shut up. What's the worst possible thing you can do right now? Give Johnny the thing he's screaming for. Because you just taught Johnny, if you scream loud enough, I will do whatever it takes to not embarrass myself. And now every time Johnny goes to the store, he knows if he screams loud enough, he'll get what he wants. And then he comes into the kingdom and he thinks that works with God. And God goes, when you have a bad attitude, I give you nothing. And he can't figure it out because he throws a fit. He yells and screams. He you know, blames God. He does all the stuff. He tries. And how many of you understand that all the self-pity does is draw evil spirits to you? So God, God doesn't reward a bad attitude. 
I'm angry because God won't do this. Well, I'll tell you one thing. The first thing you better do is get out of angry. You have to create a landing pad for the angels. You got to create a landing pad like they can't land on jealousy, envy, strife, contention, anger, bitterness, idolatry, sorcery. They can't land on that. God's like, go help them. And they're like, there was no place to land. There was a storm over them. We circled and circled. He's not going to reward your bad behavior, my bad behavior. And listen, it isn't just behavior. Before it ever gets behavior, it's attitude. He's not going to reward your bad attitude. He's a good father. So some of you, your parents taught you the wrong thing. Your parents taught you if you throw a fit, you'll get what you want. You can throw a fit with God. You'll just be fitting there for 40 years wondering why you still haven't got from God. And you can call it prayer if you want. But as long as it's a bad attitude, it doesn't matter what comes out of your mouth because your heart's already a problem. Well, brother, it's all by grace. It's by grace that he doesn't give you anything. Thank God he doesn't answer all of our prayers. I'm telling you, character matters. If someone tells you it doesn't, they don't know the gospel. Character matters. And you will be rewarded for what your deeds, for your deeds. Did you get it? When you get to heaven, you're like, well, you know, I, I can be an idiot and get to heaven. <laughs> I don't know if the goal is just to get to heaven. For me, I'm getting me a big old mansion. My goal is to have a bigger one than Bill. I'm not jealous or envious. I mean, the goal isn't just to get to heaven. The goal is to have a relationship with God. The goal isn't like, well, how much can I do wrong and still get there? I mean, I want to get there and I want to, I want to reward. You know what the Bible says that he says that when we get to heaven, fire is going to burn up all of our deeds and whatever's left, whatever's left, we're going to be rewarded for. Not his deeds, your deeds. Your deeds matter. Well, that sounds like work, brother. That sounds like works. It is. You work by the grace of God. And when you do the right thing with the stuff he gave you, you're going to get a reward for it. And if you don't, you won't. <clears throat> you guys are so funny tonight. It's so intense. Listen, listen to this. This is, this is serious. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. This is painful. Which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery is a deed of the flesh. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. You have any of these going on in your life? Disputes. Dissensions. Factions. Envying. Jealousy and envy are mentioned separate. Drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which I forewarned you. This is the new covenant. This is Galatians. Deep into the new covenant. Are you with me? This isn't the old covenant. This isn't the gospels before Jesus died on the cross. This is the new covenant. Don't tell me character doesn't matter. Listen to the rest of this. As I forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not. But the fruit of the Spirit, very next verse. But the fruit of the Spirit 
is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, listen to this, and self-control. He just said, here's all the stuff. Well, like, I don't feel like I have control over my anger. Well, the Holy Spirit does. And listen, if you let the Holy Spirit work in your life so that you can control yourself, even though the Holy Spirit did the work, because you let Him, you'll get a reward for it. Did you see how this works? Holy Spirit has the power. to He gives me the power to control myself. I can't control myself without the Holy Spirit. But after I use His power to control myself, God goes, I'm going to give you reward for that. That's a good word. I'm right about this. So if you have any of that stuff going on in your life, there, you know, I don't know. Do you, I've been in church a long time. You know, there's, there's socially acceptable sins, and then there's the really evil ones. The evil ones, and, and, then, and then, you know what we do? Oftentimes, maybe you don't do this, but other people who don't come here. And they don't watch iBethel TV either. We often have relative righteousness. Like we compare ourselves to other Christians and we're like, well, better than them. So I must be all right. Um, my goal is just to get, be a little better than Ben. If I can be a little better than Ben, then, then I feel good about myself. It's called relative right. It's like God grazed on a curve. God grazed on a curve. He's like, well, everybody in here has you know, got a D, and you got a you know, D plus. So you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. How many understand that Jesus is our standard, not one another? Okay. I want to just show you David's response, and I'll try to do this part quickly, even though this was was actually my message. (laughs) So Saul begins to chase David, and I wish we had more time for the story. But Saul finally chases David out of of his office as commander and out of his out of the palace and three or four or five times he tries to kill David while he's in the palace and finally David just flees and it's a, this amazing beautiful story of Jonathan helping David saving him from his from his own father's wrath and it's just what what an amazing story but it goes on and on and and uh Saul chases David for 14 years he's he's trying to kill him He's giving rewards for people to people who will, you know, he's like a wanted man. He's got like wanted posters all over the place for King David. In fact, one of the, the priests, one of the priests helped David. And uh, Saul found out that one of the priests helped David. And he came in and he, and he said, did you see David? And he said, yes. And he said, did you give him bread? He said, well, yes, I didn't know you guys were, had a conflict. And the and Saul killed all of the priesthood, lined them all up and slaughtered them right there, a hundred of them with all of their wives and family. And so this goes on and on and on. And David is being chased. And while David is in the wilderness being chased, he gets this prophetic word. I'm going to give your enemy into your hand and you can do to him whatever you wish. 
Now we come to 1 Samuel chapter 24, which is just one of the encounters that David actually has with Saul when he's on the run. He ends up, David's in this cave with his mighty men. And by now he's got 600 mighty men. And he's in the cave with his mighty men. And, and Saul doesn't know that David's in the cave. They're hiding in the cave. And Saul's got to go to the bathroom. So he comes into the cave to relieve himself. And while he's, if you will, in a very vulnerable position, the men go deeper into the cave. They're like, you know, Saul's here. And they see that Saul, not only is Saul in the cave, but he's in the cave with no guard. And the, Abner whispers to David, remember what the Lord said? I'm going to give your enemy into your hand and you can do to him what you wish. And we have this in verse uh, 6. So he said to them, far, David said, so far be it from me. You can imagine he's whispering in the cave to his men who want to kill Saul and have this 14-year torment over. And so he's, you can imagine that this is being whispered one to another in the depths of the cave as Saul relieves himself. And this man said, verse, uh, verse 5, in fact, we'll go to verse 4, and the, men, the, and the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy in your hand, and you shall do to him it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's garment. So Saul's going to the bathroom, and David sneaks over and cuts off the edge of his garment without Saul seeing him. Pretty dark cave. So, so he said, um, and it came about that afterward that David's conscience bothered him. Get this, this guy's trying to kill him. He's thrown a spear at him three times in the palace. He's chasing him for 14 years. He's killed all the priesthood because they gave David bread. He's, he's vowed to destroy David and his mighty men. David cuts the, his, the edge of his garment off and his conscience bothers him. After he already has the word, do to this man whatever you wish. I'm going to give him into your hand. So it says, and it came about that David's conscience bothered him because he'd cut off the edge of Saul's garment. And he said to his men, far be it from me. You can imagine this is being whispered. Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul rose and left the cave and went on his way. He rises, he goes, he leaves the cave. And when, when he's far away, David gets up on the mountain and he goes, Hey, look at your garment. You notice that you're missing a piece? Right here. I could have killed you in the cave. And then he says to him, the Lord judge between me and you, and the Lord knows that I am loyal to you. And Saul repents right there and goes home for about another year. And then he gets all stirred up. Because why? Because he's having those kind of conversations that you just raised your hand for. He's having conversations with himself. David's going to say this. I'm going to do that. This is going to happen. I'm going to, this is going to happen. And he stirs himself up. And what happens when you let, when you let that happen in your heart? Evil spirits begin to torment you. And so evil spirits are back on Saul again. And he's out after David. This is in the 26th chapter of 1 Samuel. You can turn there. Now David's being, um, um, chased. 
you can see uh, in verse one there uh, that he goes to Gibeoth and he's the men of Gibeoth are going to give him over to Saul. And so um, because there's a reward. So, you know, David takes off his men, 600 men, you know, in, in a hurry. They're rushing around this mountain. Saul's chasing him around one side of the mountain and they're going just trying to stay ahead of Saul. This is a pretty dramatic scene. And then it's nightfall. And at nightfall, Saul takes his men in the valley. And, it, and, you, and we pick up the story right here. Verse 6. Then David said to Ash, uh, whatever his name is, the Hittite, and to Abishi and Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul's camp? And Abishi said, I'll go down with you. So David and Abishi came to the people by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abnar and the people were lying around with him. Abnar was David's, I'm sorry, Abnar was Saul's personal bodyguard. And Abishi said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please let me strike him with the spear of the ground with one stroke and I'll not strike him for the second time. And David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for you cannot stretch out your hand against God's, against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt. And David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him and his day will come that he will die and he will go down in battle and perish. Verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now let's please take the spear that's by his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from this beside Saul's head, and they went away. But no one saw it or knew it. Get this. Nor did anyone awake, for they were all asleep, because a sound sleep from the Lord fell upon them. Now, I want to paint this picture for you. We're getting close to the end. Two things. First of all, David has a prophetic word. What's the prophetic word? I'm going to give your enemy into your hand. Do to him whatever you wish. What's the second thing? He has a prophetic sign from God. What's the prophetic sign? The all of Saul's men are slain in the spirit. They're all asleep by the spirit. Are, are you following me? So God gives him a word and now God sets up the circumstances so that there's no way that Saul can fight back. Are you with me? And Abnar says to him, Abishi says to him, let me just strike him to the ground. Listen, you don't even have to let me hit him twice. Just one time. And David says, far be it from me that I should touch the Lord's anointed. This Lord's anointed hates David. This guy is chasing him for 14 years. This guy's been trying to kill him. This guy is threw spears at him. This guy's got a, a, a wanted poster out for him. He's paying people to kill this guy. And David said, far be it from me that I should touch the Lord's anointed. He's got a prophetic word that he can do whatever he wants to the guy. Now he's got a sign from heaven. Everyone's asleep by the Spirit. And David said, far be it from me that I should touch God's anointed. How many understand that sometimes God creates opportunities he doesn't want us to take? It takes a man after God's heart to see an opportunity that God doesn't want you to take. God opens the door for you. He, he answers your prayers. And yet there's something in you that says the time is wrong. I wish we had more time to just go through the whole story, but I want to finish with this first Kings chapter one. David's really old. He's promised Solomon that he would be king. David's blind. 
He's nearly dead. They have a Shumanite virgin sleeping next to David. Not for, not for anything sexual, but just to keep his body temperature up. To try to keep him alive. And suddenly, something happens. Verse 5 of chapter 1 of Kings. Now, Ajaniah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself and said, I will be king. Now, just to let you know, Ajaniah is one of David's sons. The reason it's telling you who he's the son of is because David had many wives. So, Ajaniah is one of David's sons. And Ajaniah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking him, why have you done so? He also was a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. And he conferred with Joab and with Abnar the priest, and, and, uh, and Abnar the priest following Ajaniah, and they helped him. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah, Nathan the prophet, Shereel, Reel, and the mighty men of David, who belonged to David, were not with Ajaniah. And he has this big feast, verse 10. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty men, and Solomon his brother. I'll finish and I'll just tell you the story. So Ajaniah anoints himself king. He's one, he's one of David's sons. And he has Joab with him. You, you're like, okay, what does that mean? Joab is the commander of all the Israeli armies. At this time, the most famous army in the world and the most powerful captain in the world of the army, Joab. Joab is with Ajaniah. David's priest is with Ajaniah. So he has the political power. He has the religious power with him. And all the people are with Ajaniah. And he throws a big party to proclaim himself king. But he made a serious miscalculation. He did not invite the mighty men of David. And it says the mighty men of David were not with Ajaniah, and neither were Nathan the prophet or Benaiah. Benaiah was the leader of the mighty men whom David had. At this time, 300 mighty men. Nathan the prophet comes down to, into David's house where David's just nearly dead. And he says to David, did you not promise the kingship to Solomon? Did you not promise the kingship to Solomon? And David says, yes, the kingship shall fall to Solomon. Solomon is my successor. And, and Nathan says, Ajani, your other son, just proclaimed himself king. And Joab and all the armies of Israel are with him. And David said, Get my donkey, put Solomon on it, and surround them with the mighty men. By now, the mighty men are old men, but they are feared. The Bible says that one of them was like a thousand. The least of them was like a thousand men, and the greatest was like ten thousand. They did things for practice like kill a lion with their bare hands in a pit. That was just practice. They make the Navy SEAL look like Boy Scouts. These are old men by now. They surround the royal donkey, if you will, and Solomon, 
And they begin to march Solomon down Main Street with the mighty men of God, the mighty men of David around him. Now, you have to understand, all of the armies of Israel are with Joab. I'm sorry, with Joab. All the armies of Israel are with Joab, who's with Abishai. Or Ajaniah, who's proclaimed himself king. Sorry, too many names. They're all having this big inauguration party for Ajaniah. You can imagine the ar- armies of Israel are dancing in the streets. They have this big celebration. They're partying. They're just about to commission Ajaniah as king. And somebody looks out the window and sees Solomon's donkey riding towards the throne. And they run in and they say, To Ajaniah, Solomon is on his way to the throne. And get this, and the mighty men are with him. When Ajaniah hears that the mighty men are with David, he turns to Joab and says, the mighty men are with David, are with Solomon. And Joab says, I'm getting out of here. The commander of the Israeli armies and all the armies flee from 300 men. And Ajaniah runs for his life. And the end of that story is, is that mighty men, the 300 mighty men, save history. They put Solomon on the throne. And we have the golden years of Israel. What's the main point? The main point is this. Those mighty men watch their leader refuse to kill the king and be loyal to a man who is not loyal to him in the midst of the most difficult circumstances in life. And over and over, his mighty men tried to get him to be disloyal to a man who hated him and he refused to do it. And what happened when David's life was over and Solomon was to be, thr- to be the next king to sit on the throne? Everybody was with Ajaniah. Everybody voted for Ajaniah. All the armies, all the religious people. This is a very, you understand, the only people who are with David is a prophet, a priest, Benaiah, and 300 mighty men. Everybody else is with Ajaniah. But the mighty men have watched a man live out his virtues when it cost him. And they said, we cannot be with Ajaniah. For our loyalty is not determined by popularity. Our loyalty is to David. Whether we die or we live, our loyalties to this man who's been loyal to us. And David taught those men how to save history when he didn't even know that it would be necessary. Today, these days, we have fair weather friends that They're with you 
when you succeed and when you're popular and when you're doing everything right. And if you fall or you do something that's not popular or you turn over tables or you say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you give a bad message. They're all with somebody else who has a better one. And I want to tell you that character matters. That God's looking for mighty men. He's looking for mighty, mighty, mighty women. He's looking for people who are not moved by circumstances because they live by virtues. See, there's two ways to live in life, in my opinion. You can live by circumstances and your opinion changes from circumstance to circumstance. Or you can live by stances. Stances don't change when the circumstances change. And I feel like that one of the most important values of heaven is being lost under a message of grace that is not the gospel. God did everything that he could do. He said, it's finished. He didn't say, you're finished. He said, I did my part. I'm waiting for you to do yours. And I think that virtues and living a virtuous life is becoming a lost art, even in the kingdom. I think being loyal to people when they don't deserve it. How many of you understand, I'm not loyal to you because you're doing the right thing. I'm loyal to you because you're my friend. I don't always agree with Bill Johnson. We don't always agree. That's a great sign that we have the freedom to think Individually. I'm not a puppet. I'm nobody's yes man. I learned loyalty through watching a loyal man. The things that he has been crucified for the most is being loyal to people who became his friends, who go through something, And they no longer deserve his loyalty. But he holds loyalty as a higher standard than their fall. And he refuses to throw them under the bus when public opinion says, it's time to distance yourself. He he said, I won't distance myself from people that I've made a covenant with. You may not like who Bill protects, But I bet if you fell, you'd be glad that he's your friend. You may not agree with the way that things are done sometimes. But when you look underneath the surface of everything that's being done by that man, you're going to find that loyalty is a virtue 
that's been handed down from generation to generation from his forefathers that they have fought for their whole life. And they would rather die than be disloyal to someone, no matter the person's condition. Being loyal isn't always popular. It's a lot easier just to throw somebody under the bus, distance yourself from them when they've done something stupid or crazy. You can imagine that David's mighty men weren't the most virtuous people when he met them. But they followed a giant killer and they became a giant they became giant killers. I've been thinking about this for weeks. I watch people change opinions. Every time the opinion polls change, they try to figure out what's going to cost them to follow this person or what it's going to cost them to follow that person. You know, when you live from virtues, you're not counting the cost. You already count the cost. It's amazing, you know, when we get married, we take a vow for better, for worse, for richer, for poor. We just never think it's going to be for worse or poor. And then when it is, we're trying to figure out how to get out of what we said we do. I understand there are lots of circumstances. My son went through a divorce, so no guilt. I'm not trying to condemn anybody. I'm trying to call you higher. I'm trying to say, God's given you the power to live as a virtuous woman, a virtuous man. He's given you the power. But that doesn't mean you'll live virtuously. It just means you have the power to. And you'll make a choice whether you're going to live under the circumstances. And how often we use that phrase. Well, under the circumstances. Well, if you live from virtues, you're never under the circumstances. You're always above the circumstances. And so I believe that God is calling us to be a people who know when to not take opportunities, not go through doors that God opened. And I think that sometimes when God prophesies to us, He's testing our heart rather than determining our destiny. I don't know if you heard what I just said. I think when God looked down and saw that David refused to kill the guy that he gave permission to kill, God goes, I got me a king. He's a man after my heart. And if you read the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus Christ himself is called the son of David, who sits on the throne of David. I mean, the guy didn't do everything right. We know that. But he had a heart. And when God said, here's an opportunity, do whatever you want. He said, I'll choose loyalty. And God said, I got a man whose throne will perpetuate into eternity. In fact, I'll have my only begotten son sit on his throne. That's pretty heavy. 
I want you to bow your head for a minute. Because you're going to get up and leave here. And, and sometimes I feel so strongly that the Holy Spirit is dealing with us and then you know, all of a sudden it's like, okay, let's move on to another activity. Who needs prayer? You know, let's, okay, if you have to go, go. And we get up from here and we, we lose the, the if I want, I want to use the word conviction in a good way. We lose the this, this sense of conviction of what the Holy Spirit was saying to us. And we never actually bring closure to our lives. And we move from You know, you know, it's it's almost like having an argument with your wife, and your friend walks in, and you stop the argument, and and, and then you 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 leave for on a trip for thirty days, and you you never really get to you never get closure. Like there's no closure. It's like an open wound. And sometimes I feel like stuff like this happens. Like God calls us to something. We feel deep conviction in our heart, one way or another, something God's talked to us about. And then we get up and we go. And that opportunity to really make a decision about who will be is lost. And maybe it doesn't come back for months or years until that same anointing's in the room again. And I feel like there's an anointing in the room and that many of us are under conviction I say conviction, I don't mean like you've done something evil or whatever. This isn't about doing something wrong. This is about doing something right. How many of you understand? I don't want to be, I don't want to be, I don't want my identity in what I don't do. Well, I don't do drugs. I don't, you know, it's like, okay, that's great. What do you, who, listen, who are you? Don't tell me who you're not. Who are you? And I believe that God is calling you to nobility. You, And I are called as a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We're not called to live on the same level as other people. We're called to live nobly as sons and daughters of God. We often say, I'm a son of God, and then behave like a slave. You know, being a son or daughter of God, it has its rights, but it also has its responsibilities. To whom much is given, much is required.